Good morning, everyone. We good? All right, uh, today we're going to be picking up in Acts chapter 9, and we will be looking at verses 32 to 43, and I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible, the 1995 update. Before we begin our Bible study, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this morning. We thank you for this time of freedom that we enjoy, that we can assemble together in peace, that this can be a time of good fellowship, of prayer, of worship, and of study in your word. And Father, we just pray as we take this time to consider the sacred text, uh, that we will be sensitive to the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, who helps us to understand it. And we pray that uh, we will also be challenged by these things that we might grow thereby. Father, we thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, some introductory points. Uh, After Saul's conversion to Christ, uh, he stopped persecuting the church and began to preach that Jesus, began to preach Jesus as the Son of God. And one can imagine that the church must have just taken a a collective breath, (laughs) you know, uh, because the persecution had stopped. And we're told in Acts 9.31 that this resulted in peace throughout the region. Luke tells us in Acts 9.31, he says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it continued to increase. And this is really kind of an ideal situation. The church prefers to meet and to operate during times of peace. We know that historically and globally that has not been the norm, And so we welcome those times when we can uh, worship together in peace. Now in the following pericope, the section that we're going to cover today, Luke records the spreading of the gospel and Peter's ministry, uh, and his ministry really outside of Jerusalem, specifically in the cities of Lydda and Joppa. And he's going to mention Sharon, but Sharon is the coastal plain, within which these cities exist. So let's jump into the text here. We'll look at Acts 9.32 to begin with. So Luke, turning from Saul's conversion, recounts an event with Peter first in the city of Lydda. Luke wrote in Acts 9.32, he says, Now as Peter was traveling throughout all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And here you can see this map uh, that I have up here that shows uh, Judea. It shows Caesarea Maritima, uh, which was a seaport. And we see the region there of Samaria. And we see here on the map where we see Jerusalem, uh, Lydda, and the coastal city of Joppa. And then just to the north of that, you have what's called their Sharon, which is that region uh, where these uh, cities are located. So it kind of helps, gives us a visual uh, on this text. Uh, Now, it's interesting that there were saints uh, in Lydda. When Peter arrives, there were saints there. And this shows that the gospel had been preached there, and some had believed in Jesus as Savior. Some uh, speculate that perhaps Philip's ministry had gone up into this region. Uh, And one can't be dogmatic. We just know that when Peter arrives, there are saints present there. Now, the word saint 
is a synonym for a believer, not a description of one's character or a super category of, uh, of Christians who are somehow holier than everybody else, because that's the modern uh, way that the term is often employed. But really, when we see the term hagios, when it's used of when, when it's used of Christians, it's just simply a synonym for a Christian. For example, one sees over in Romans 1.7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints, just simply Christians. Uh, Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.2, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Now, if you read through 1 Corinthians, you realize that they were not very saintly, and their behavior. In fact, they were very carnal. But nonetheless, whether they were walking in the Spirit or operating in carnality, uh, they have the designation of saint. And so we want to keep that in mind. And this speaks of their positional identity in Christ. This is a positional truth. And so when we see the term saint, we should not think of behavior. We should think of position. And again, just simply a synonym for a Christian. 2 Corinthians 1.1 Again, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Ephesians 1.1, we see where they are called saints. Philippians 1.1, uh, to all the saints in Christ who are in Philippi. Colossians 1, the same. So this just demonstrates the point that when one sees this term, we're just simply talking about believers. Now, after Peter had arrived in Lydda, Luke tells us in uh, Acts 9.33, he says, There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. Now, that Luke describes Aeneas simply as a man, uh, from the Greek word anthropos. We get the English word anthropology, and when you see that, that L-O-G-Y on the end of a word, that's from the Greek word logos, which means a word about or the study of. So when you see like anthropology, it's the study of man, really the origins of man and so on. But here it's just simply translated as a man. Uh, and it could be that describing him as simply an anthropos, as a man, it could be that Luke is telling us that he is not a saint or a disciple. Uh, so it might imply that he was not a believer. One can't be dogmatic here, but language matters and, you know, these sorts of things. You know, when, they, when you see that, you think, well, what is Luke telling me about this person? Uh, Luke then tells us that Aeneas had been paralyzed for eight years. Doesn't tell us why he was paralyzed, how he got into this condition. But that he had been paralyzed for eight years, uh, and it says that he was bedridden. So here is a picture of a man who is paralyzed and cannot get out of bed. Now, in my line of work, I work for a local nonprofit, and we help the elderly, uh, the disabled, the impoverished in the community. And so I go into homes where I see people who are in a paralyzed condition, and I see their caregiver. Often that's a family member. Sometimes it's uh, somebody with a home health care agency. But I see the fatigue what in our line of work we call compassion fatigue uh, that many of these caregivers have to deal with because it limits them. It limits them from being able to work if they're a full-time caregiver. It limits them from having a social life. Uh, it means that they have to be able to clean this person, care for this person, feed this person, and just be there. And that is very, very demanding. And, uh, and, and so I, as I read this, I mean, immediately I thought of a number of scenarios where I've walked in and seen this on a number of occasions. 
Uh, now, Aeneas being paralyzed uh, uh, from here, from this context, would tell me that he cannot sit up, he cannot dress, feed, or clean himself. In effect, somebody had to care for him. And if he were transported anywhere, somebody had to move him and care for him along the way, had to care for him as he was being transported. And apparently the man had a support structure in place to assist him during his years of paralysis, and I would think that this was most likely family. And caring for others can bring great stress. First, there is the mental and emotional stress of caring for a loved one who is in a declining situation. The caregiver themselves will experience states of mental frustration and emotional exhaustion. In addition, there are the ongoing physical demands of caring for them, a commitment to be physically present, the financial costs and the loss of independence by the caregiver as he or she surrenders personal interest to care for their loved one. And I add a little bit of uh, context to this just simply to point out that when Peter performs this miracle, as we're about to see, this healing doesn't just affect Aeneas. It's going to affect other people around him. And, and he's going to do it in the name of the Lord, which is going to draw people's attention to Jesus as the Savior. And, and so just to kind of uh, uh, add a little bit of extra info there. So Luke recounts Peter's interaction with Aeneas, informing him that Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. Now, uh, from this context, I think of other examples where when Jesus healed people, uh, there were times where they didn't even know it was coming, where he just simply spoke to them and they were healed. And then he tells them, take up your mat, take up your pallet, and, and go. <laughs> and, and I wonder if that's not the situation here. Again, we're not given all the particulars except that Peter simply tells him, Jesus Christ heals you, get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. Now, this account is similar to that of the Lord Jesus who had healed a paralytic in Capernaum, telling the man to take up his bed and to go home. And so the language here is very similar. Uh, Peter's language is very similar to that of the Lord. And then also to the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda, where Jesus said to him simply, pick up, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Now, here is a man who had been paralyzed for eight years, so one would assume that he has phantom memories, that he has memories of what it was like to be healthy, to walk, to have some degree of freedom and, and normal function. And so for him to be healed, uh, you know, for him to get up and to resume that activity, uh, you know, what a blessing. I mean, that must have been. And of course, this is going to draw a lot of attention. So the healing of Aeneas was done specifically in the name of Jesus Christ, which was intended to draw attention to Jesus as the living one who had authority over physical maladies. And the healing was immediate and total. It was, it was complete. In other words, this didn't happen in stages. Uh, this was immediate. It was total healing. And Luke uses the Greek adjective eutheos, which according to Mounts means immediately, instantly, at once. And by the way, you find this pattern that when, uh, for the most part, when you have healings, they are instantaneous. Uh, when a man who is born paralyzed uh, from, you know, say from the waist down, when he's healed, he has perfect muscle tone. And as I've mentioned before, it's in some of those situations, it's not just a miracle of the body uh, being restored to ideal conditions. It's also a miracle of the mind. 
Because if a person has never walked and all of a sudden they get up and they're walking, well, that's instantaneous knowledge. And if you've never experienced that, well, you know, what are you drawing from? So, again, some of these miracles are more than just a, uh, a miracle of the body. It's also a miracle of the mind. And in some situations, a, a social healing as well. Now, the healing of Aeneas, again, brought instantaneous health to the man and also brought relief to his caregiver or caregivers who had provided for him over the eight years. And as somebody who spent years caring for my mom, uh, she passed February 16, 2021, as many of you know, uh, the last few years of her life, I mean, I cared for her for about six, seven years, but the last two years she was dealing with moderate dementia. And there were times where she could not care for herself. There were times that she didn't even know who I was. I would show up at the door. I remember one time standing in the doorway and him, her looking at me and saying, are you my son or my grandson? And I paused for a moment and I said, pick one. Who do you like? I'll be that one. Uh, because you don't argue with people that are dealing with dementia. Uh, rational words only work with rational minds. And there was not a rational conversation to be had. So you pick your battles in those situations. But I had to manage all of her finances, all of her um, medical visits, all of her medications, all of her health care uh, concerns. I had to go over and visit with her sometimes at 4.30 in the morning, then maybe on my lunch break, then, on the e then in the evening, if I had to change her sheets or bring her uh, medical supplies or something. And you do that for several years, and I'm going to tell you what, it drains your battery. I mean, it really drains your battery. And again, as I read through this, I thought about the experience of it. And when my mom passed, when she graduated and went to heaven, when the Lord took her home at 7 p.m. Uh, on February 16th, it was during the ice storm back in 2021, which y'all remember, it was a Tuesday night. Uh, it was a relief for her because her last breath here was followed by her first breath there. And one can imagine what a breath that must have been. And so she then had a perfect state of mind, uh, in the presence of the Lord, uh, no more sin, uh, no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, all those things are gone. But for me, there was also the relief of knowing that she was now in the presence of the Lord. And so my responsibilities normalized and went back to just everyday function, you know, of working and so on. So I thought about this from my work profession, also from personal experience. So this very, uh, very much resonated with me. So we have here, going back to the text here, where though, again, there was certainly a blessing to Aeneas and his loved ones, in this context, God intended a greater purpose, which was the salvific healing of souls. And in Acts 9.35, 9 Luke records, he says, And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon, and remember Sharon was the region playing there, was, was the region, saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, that's the way ministry really should be. It should always point people to God, to Christ, to His Word. Uh, that should always be the point here. And I love the fact that it, it tells us here that they turned to the Lord. Now, Lydda was the city and Sharon was the coastal region where the city was located. And all those who knew the paralyzed man now saw him in perfect health. And the result was they turned to the Lord, which is a form of theological shorthand, simply meaning that they believed in Christ as their personal Savior. It may also connote that they were obedient in baptism and became disciples. Uh, Dr. Thomas Constable notes from his commentary on Acts, he says, the phrase believed in the Lord is similar to turn to the Lord. 
And it is another way of saying that they became Christians. And both phrases emphasize that the person they believed in was the Lord Jesus. Uh, He closes out, he says, Notice that turned is equal, is equated with believed, and that Luke mentioned no other condition for salvation. Now going on in the notes here, Sometimes it is true that God heals people for His purposes, and sometimes He does not. It is His, He is sovereign, we always want to keep this in mind, and works all things after the counsel of His will. And if when God does not heal someone, it is ultimately for His own purposes. And sometimes sickness leads to death, which is the vehicle he uses to bring his children home to heaven. I think of the passage in 2 Kings 13, 14, which I've referenced before. And it just simply tells us that Elisha became sick with the illness with which he was to die. Uh, He wasn't doing anything wrong. He wasn't outside of God's will. He wasn't being reprimanded in any way. Uh, It was just his time to go. And it just simply says that he became sick with the the illness with which he was to die. And sometimes that is how God chooses to bring his children home. And so we just want to keep that in mind, uh, that sometimes we do have examples of healing, but many times not. This is ultimately according to his sovereign will. Now Luke then transitions to his next account of Peter's ministry. So we're going to move away from Aeneas. And we're going to see this, uh, his moving down to Joppa. Now, starting here in Acts 9.36, Luke tells us, Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. Uh, this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Now, it could be that Luke here gives the Greek name, perhaps for his Greek-speaking audience. Uh, Because remember that the church at this time is primarily Jewish, but Gentiles are uh, going to be brought in here. And so it could be that he references her Greek name for that purpose. Now Joppa was a coastal town that once had a thriving seaport. However, it lost much of its trade when Herod built the seaport of Caesarea in honor of his friend Caesar. Of course, Joppa was known in the Old Testament as the place where Jonah fled when disobeying the Lord's call to preach to the Gentiles. Now Luke tells us about a woman here named Tabitha, who also had the Greek name Dorcas. Both names, by the way, mean gazelle. That Tabitha was a disciple meant that she was a believer. And this woman was loved and greatly known in her community. And Luke tells us that she was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity which she continually did. Whereas Luke had previously focused on a paralyzed man as one who needed help, Aeneas, here he focuses on a woman who was a caregiver and provided help to others. Uh, And her work was not to a family member, but really to the community where she lived. Uh, And this means she had a heart of compassion as well as a sense of responsibility to help meet the physical needs of others. When the need was present, when she saw it, she was simply somebody who rose to the occasion. And she operated within her resources and within her skill. Uh, I think it was McGee who said that she had the gift of sewing, uh, that that was her gift. Of course, one can't find that in the Bible, but nonetheless, it it communicates, doesn't it? Uh, But here was a woman who saw a need, and she simply had a skill and some resources, and so she worked to help meet the needs of others. 
And by the way, this is true of many healthy Christian ministries which have outreach services for those in the communities around them. Now Luke tells us in verse 37, it says, And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Now this was a tragedy for others who lost this gracious woman. When you have somebody that is actively involved in ministry and is having that kind of impact and they suddenly, uh, and they suddenly pass, uh, that is felt very deeply uh, by those people who are impacted by that person's ministry. Uh, but the account is also a little bit unusual because we're informed that after they had washed her body, they, they laid her in an upper room. And this is unusual as the dead were commonly buried in short time, and this in order to mitigate the experience of the sights and smells of decaying flesh. It's possible that this was an act of faith by those who cared for her body, as perhaps they'd heard about the miracle in Lydda and thought the Lord may perform a miracle for them as He'd done there. That's possible. And in verse 938, or Acts 9.38, Luke tells us, Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, this would be some believers, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men imploring him, Do not delay in coming to us. Now, when Peter received word from the disciples in Joppa, we're told in verse 39, it says, So Peter arose and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all their tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. So one can imagine this situation where Peter comes in, he goes up to the upper room, and here's all these widows standing around holding the garments, tangible things that were a memory to them of her kindness, tangible expressions of her goodness to them. And here they are holding these objects, weeping. And one can almost imagine them holding them out and showing Peter uh, the things that, she, that Dorcas had given to them, that Tabitha had given to them, that for them was very meaningful. Again, a very tangible good, we might say. So here we observe Peter as a leader who was willing to serve others and responded quickly to their call for help. It is true that those who are not willing to serve are not qualified to lead. I think of passages in Matthew 23, 11, where Jesus said, But the greatest among you shall be your servant. And Luke 22, 26, which says, But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. Of course, one can think of Jesus in the upper room when during that time when he was fellowshipping and instructing the disciples, he laid aside his garments and put on a towel and got down on his hands and knees and washed the disciples' feet. And I guarantee that those were the cleanest feet in Jerusalem on that day because when the Lord did it, it was done very, very well. I guarantee it. Uh, but this was an object lesson in humility and in serving one another. And Jesus gets back up and he puts his clothes back on afterwards. And he tells them, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, by the way, his positions of authority did not diminish. He still retained those positions. He said, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. 
Reading on in verse 16 and 17, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You are blessed if you do them. And of course, 1 Peter 4.10 tells us, As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So again, those who are not willing to serve are not qualified to lead. And this is true today as the church has an obligation to help the needy. As pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And so as we have opportunity, we rise to that occasion and we seek to help those who are in need. And then he goes on, he says, and and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And Galatians 6.10, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Now, after Peter arrived, we're told that Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Now, we must distinguish in the Bible resuscitation from resurrection. There were examples where Jesus brought people back to life and they were resuscitated only to die again. Resurrection is different because when one is resurrected, one will not die again. And so one takes this to be an example of resuscitation. Now this is parallel, this account is parallel to Mark's account of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter. Regarding the similarity of these two events, Warren Wearsby notes, he says... In both cases, the mourning people were put out of the room. Uh, He says, and the words spoken are almost identical. Talitha kumi, little girl arise. Tabitha kumi, Tabitha arise. In both instances, it was the power of God that raised the person from the dead. And for the dead person, uh, for the dead person certainly could not exercise faith, end quote. And it is interesting to see that parallel here. And this, I think, shows that Peter learned lessons from the Lord uh, on how to do things. And we see him modeling uh, the Lord's behavior. Uh, The parallel here is, to me, beyond coincidence. Furthermore, we're told that after Tabitha had been resuscitated, that Peter called the saints and widows back into the room, and there he presented her alive. Now, one can imagine uh, the overwhelming... Uh, surprise to see somebody who had been dead standing there alive. Not to mention somebody who had such an impactful role as being a provider. Uh, And so again, this is very, very amazing. And this is similar to the account where Elijah resuscitated the son of the widow of Zarephath and then afterwards gave him to his mother. And Jesus, after resuscitating the son of the widow of Nain, gave him back to his mother The restoration of a deceased child to a widow mother was a blessing. And here, Peter's restoration of Tabitha was a blessing to the widows of Joppa. Luke tells us uh, that the outcome, he tells us the outcome of the miracle. He says, and it became known all over Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Now, though these poor widows were blessed uh, to have their friend and provider back, and I'm sure that they were very glad, The greater blessing here was that others came to believe in the Lord and as a result came to have forgiveness of sins 
and eternal life. That is the greater blessing. Now, though the Bible presents many miracles historically, uh, they are actually rare uh, uh, throughout, uh, throughout history. Historically, they are rare and usually mark a historical shift where God is grabbing the attention of His people to let them know He's doing something new. This was true during the time of the Exodus, the wilderness wanderings, the wilderness wanderings, and the time of conquest under Joshua. It was also true during the time of ministry for Elijah and Elisha, when God was turning the nation from egregious idolatry. And it is also true during the time of Jesus and his apostles to mark the coming of the Messiah, as well as the shift from the dispensation of law to that of grace. God still continues to act supernaturally in people's lives, but often behind the scenes in ways that people often do not detect or detect later in their lives when hindsight is clearer. And I've done this. I've looked back at times where in the moment did not see something clearly. And I look back in hindsight and I say, the Lord was there. He, I see that with greater clarity now. And, um, and I think that that's often true for many people. Uh, a quote here from John Walvoord. Of course, we all love Walvoord. He says, with the completion of the New Testament and its almost universal acceptance by those true to God, the need for further unusual display of miraculous works ceased. The preacher of today does not need the outward evidence of ability to heal or to speak with tongues to substantiate the validity of his gospel. Rather, the written word speaks for itself and is attended by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I agree with him on that. Now Luke closes out this pericope in verse 43, just simply telling us that Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Now Peter staying with a tanner could have been regarded as scandalous by many uh, of the religious Jews who considered the practice unclean because he's handling uh, obviously skins of corpses. Uh, but this might also express a shift in Peter's theology and his practices as he was moving away from the dispensation of law to grace. Now, that's really going to be tested shortly when he has the vision of the unclean animals coming down. And Peter, in typical form, tells the Lord, no, not once, not twice, but three times. He loves that threefold pattern. There's just something about that. Uh, but nonetheless, that's what this could speak of here, uh, his shift in theology and practice. Thomas Constable notes, he says, Evidently, Peter remained in Joppa for quite some time, many days, in order to confirm these new converts and to help the church in that town. His willingness to stay with a tanner shows that Peter was more broad-minded in his fellowship than many other Jews. Many Jews thought that tanners practiced an unclean trade because they worked with the skins of dead animals, and so they would have nothing to do with them. So again, it's just a little standalone verse, but there's some interesting stuff that goes on there that uh, might tell us some things about Peter. So in summary, the central idea of the text is that Peter traveled to Lydda and Joppa and performed miracles in order to draw attention to Christ so that others might believe in him and be saved. That's the quick summary of that, the, the, the central idea of the text. Now, just some quick pre uh, present application, because when I'm thinking about these things, I often think about, are there any principles that can be extracted or extrapolated that we can then apply to ourselves? So below are a few principles of ministry extrapolated from the Tabitha narrative. 
One, Tabitha was a believer who was marked by acts of kindness and charity toward others. Two, though some ministries are corporate in nature, Tabitha's appears to be singular and personal as she actively sought to meet the needs of those near her, displaying compassion and generosity in tangible ways. Again, what I call that tangible good. Tabitha's work, number three, Tabitha's work revealed a heart of love and sacrifice as she gave of her resources, talents, and time to make clothing that blessed other people. Four, the the display of Tabitha's tunics and garments by the widows revealed how deeply they were impacted by her kindness. And this shows that a ministry's influence can partly be measured in the lives of people who have been positively impacted. Five, Tabitha also displayed a sense of personal responsibility and leadership as she did not wait for others to act, but took it upon herself to meet the needs of those around her. She saw the need and she rose to the occasion. Six, when God resuscitated Tabitha as a result of Peter's ministry, it is assumed that she restarted her ministry to others. And one would assume that, that she just went back to her normal practices, which was a blessing to those who uh, benefited from her. And it also demonstrates, one, that no ministry lasts forever, just like no church lasts forever. Historically, globally, churches come into existence, a local congregation, people, uh, the church rises, uh, has a a time of, of success, declines, phases out, and then a new church pops up somewhere else. And this is true on an individual as well as on a corporate level. So one, it shows that no ministry lasts forever, and a ministry that has diminished, like Tabitha's or died, can be revived if the Lord wills it. And it's always according to His sovereign will. It's always according to His sovereign will. So there's hope here, isn't there? (laughs) So that closes out this section, and I'll close out here finally uh, with a presentation of the gospel. I know that everybody here is a believer, but for those who are watching online, I'll take a moment to explain the gospel here. So if you are here this morning without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life, I want you to know that when Jesus was on the cross, when He hung between heaven and earth, that He had you personally in mind as He bore your sin and paid the price for it. He died and paid the penalty for your sins so that you would not have to. Scripture reveals in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. And the good news, as Paul presents it in 1 Corinthians 15.3 and 4, is that Christ died for us according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that if we place our faith in Him as the only Savior, because man needs only Christ to be saved. That if we place our faith in Him as the only Savior, we are promised forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and a place in heaven forever. And I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this morning, for this time of fellowship together, of prayer, of worship, and of study in your word. And Father, we just pray as uh, we continue on our fellowship this morning that uh, this will be a time in which you are honored and we are edified. 
We pray that we will be challenged by the things that we've studied this morning, that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen.